Well, good morning, everybody. Welcome to Gospel Saving Church. I want to welcome everybody in my home, and I want to welcome everybody coming from SoundCloud all over the world. God bless you all, and thank you for joining us here at Gospel Saving Church. Another beautiful Sunday morning here in August here in Texas or wherever you are in the whole world. I want to welcome you. Thank you. And I praise God for your coming and listening to me today and showing the Lord that He's important to you by listening to this message, even all the way through. It's important that, you know, we don't just hear tidbits, but it's important that we listen to God and everything He has to say. And it's just the same thing. We show God that He's important to us by sitting here, you know, the whole hour this Sunday and listening to God or however long I preach and listening to the whole of the Word of God, not just partial of the Word of God. So if you guys want to join me in a word of prayer, we'll just uh, lift up this service unto the Lord in our hearts and ask the Lord to help us understand and ask the Lord to move on our hearts and to change us. Because I don't know about you, but... I don't like being the guy that I was before Jesus, and I don't even like being the guy that makes lots of mistakes and does things wrong and sins against God sometimes. So I want God to continue to change me. I hope you are the same. You want God to continue to change you. So let's pray and ask God to continue to change us and make us more like Him, to sanctify us and to make us more into His image. Lord, thank you so much, Lord, for this day. Thank you so much for bringing us here, Lord. Thank you so much for this message that you give me this week, Lord. Thank you so much for... All the people that are listening all over the world and the people that come into my home faithfully every week, Lord, we love you, we praise you, we thank you. Lord, We, uh, I just ask that you would prepare our hearts to hear this word today, to hear this message today, Lord. I pray you'd prepare uh, the hearts and the, our hearts and our minds and our souls, Lord God, to receive what you have to say to us. And Lord, may we not be then just hearers only of this word I'm about to preach, Lord, but may we be doers of this word that I'm about to preach, Lord. And Lord, I pray that the, that all those that will ever listen to this message, Lord, wouldn't just hear this message and and let it fall on deaf ears, Lord. I pray that they would actually do something according to what they hear today. I pray that they would respond, Lord. So please, dear God, get this message all over the world and, and touch hearts and minds with it, Lord God. And, and may we hear you today and not just disregard what you have to say. We love you and we bless you and we praise you and we thank you, dear God. We ask these things in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. All right, so first, my thoughts from last week's message, Peter's silly attempt to rescue Jesus. If you guys want to be turning in your Bibles, you can. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 26, verses 57 through 68 today. Again, Matthew chapter 26, verses 57 through 68 today. But first, my thoughts from last week's message, Peter's silly attempt to rescue Jesus. People, including myself, I'm not exempt from this, do a lot of silly things in their lives, right? Some people would not use the word silly necessarily to describe the things that they do in life that I would consider silly. They might use the words uh, you know, stupid or, or dumb or idiotic or goofy to describe the silly things they do and you know, instead. But whether you call the imperfect things you do, because that's really what they are, they're imperfect things. The silly things we do are really imperfect things. They're just unwise things, imperfect things we do, whether we call them silly, stupid, or whatever. In essence, the ultimate way to describe them, as I just said, is, is they're not the wisest things we've ever done. And we do silly things, they're just not wise things. And so we could say that Peter's silly attempt to rescue Jesus last week that we read about was the not the most wise thing that he ever did, and it's not. it was the unwisest thing he did to attempt to rescue Jesus. Okay? Why? 
Why was it a very unwise thing of Peter to try to rescue Jesus from this crowd? Well, not only was there a no-win situation, but also uh, because it was against God's will. God's will was not for anybody to step in. God's will was not to deliver Jesus Christ from the hands of sinners. God's will was for Jesus to have that happen to him and go to the cross and die for man's sins. And Peter was really, in essence, stepping inside that and kind of trying to interfere with Jesus fulfilling God's will. But since we all do silly and stupid and dumb or unwise things in our lives, it's important that we're not too hard on Peter, right? Because we've all been there. I know I have. There's even been instances in the past where I've just done things even in you know, I knew something was God's will, but I wasn't thinking about it, and I blew it just like Peter did. So it's important that we're not too hard on Peter, because we've all been there. But now that being said, although we all do silly or unwise things in our lives, I want to say that there's nothing silly or uh, nothing silly at all about the things of God and His will that He wants to do in our lives and on the face of this planet. We need to be careful... Unlike Peter, how he wasn't careful last week, we need to be careful to keep away from doing unwise, silly, stupid, or dumb things when dealing with God and his will and his ways, right? God's ways and his will are a serious thing. They're they're very serious, okay? And they really affect eternity. They don't just have an effect on this moment. They have an effect for all eternity, And they're usually tied up in somebody's salvation, your salvation, your sanctification, somebody else's sanctification. What are those things? Well, salvation, that's so we don't burn in hell forever. And sanctification, that's our growing to be more like Christ on an everyday basis. That's uh, salvation and sanctification. And these issues of God are no laughing matter. They're not silly. They're no jokes. They're not a joke, okay? The, The issues of God are no laughing matter. For instance, if we dissect Peter's unwise attempt to rescue Jesus in the garden, we see all these different things. We see someone who wasn't Malchus got hurt. Remember, he Malchus probably wasn't even armed, and Peter yet he stepped out there and unwisely cut off his ear, right? Even though he wasn't supposed to, because that was against God's will. It was meant for Jesus to go through that. So someone gets hurt because of it. Remember then, Jesus had to fix his problem. Because since that wasn't God's will, Jesus wasn't going to allow that to happen. How did he have to fix it? He had he picked up Malchus' ear and he put it back on and he healed him. Jesus then had to rebuke Peter for what he did. And all because Peter was interfering with God's plan for Christ dying on the cross for the sins of the world. And theoretically, had he uh, managed to mess that all up, nobody would have been able to get saved. Nobody would have the choice or the chance to have eternal life with God. But I don't know about you, but I don't want to stand before God someday having handled anything to do with the salvation or sanctification of myself or another human being in a silly, unwise way. Because that could affect, of course, both of our eternities. So main point here, when when looking at the dissection of Peter's unwise action in the garden and even unwise things we sometimes do, Unlike our normal everyday life, we need to make sure that we handle the things and issues of God in a serious and sober way. Making sure with all the things of God, 
we put a lot of effort and thought into what we do before we do it. We've all heard this saying, right? The saying, think before you act. Well, that is such a key. It's definitely something that we need to think about, think before we act when it comes to the things and issues of God and his will for us and others. We need to just slow down when it comes to something of God and we need to sit back and think, well, wait a minute. This is something of God. I need, okay, wait, how would God handle this situation? Instead of just acting rashly, as Peter did in the garden, trying to rescue Jesus against a multitude of Roman soldiers, and there was a no-win situation, we need to think and sit back and act wisely and slow down. A wise man is slow to react. A wise man is slow to speak. And so we need to keep that in the forefronts of our minds. I thought that was just a good, you know, overall Hey, FYI, guys, let's just make sure we're handling the things of God in a slow and calm and thoughtful manner. Unlike how Peter silly tried to you know, rescue Jesus in the garden last week. All right. Well, praise God. Let's get into our sermon for today. Uh, title for our sermon today. Their verdict of him was guilty and their sentence of him was death. Their verdict of him was guilty, and their sentence of him was death. Let's read Matthew chapter 26, verses 57 through 68, shall we? And then we'll get to study in our scripture. Matthew 26, verse 57, if you guys want to read along with me, or you can just listen along whenever you'd like to do. The Bible goes on to say, And those who had laid hold of Jesus led him away to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders were assembled. But Peter followed him at a distance to the high priest's courtyard, and he went in and sat with the servants to see the end. Now the chief priests, the elders, and all the council sought false testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. Even though many false witnesses came forward, they found none. But at last, two false witnesses came forward and said, This fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to build it in three days. And the high priest arose and said to him, Do you answer nothing? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus kept silent. And the high priest answered and said to him, I put you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, It is as you said. Nevertheless, I say to you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and the coming or in coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his clothes, saying, He has spoken blasphemy. What further need do we have of witnesses? Look, now you have heard his blasphemy. What do you think? They answered and said, He is deserving of death. Then they spat in his face and beat him. And others struck him with the palms of their hands, saying, Prophecy to us, Christ. Who is it that struck you? Who is the one who struck you? Wow. All right, so last week we read of the sad arrest of Christ in the garden, fulfilling what Jesus had told his disciples, remember, many times before. He had told his disciples many times that this same event was going to happen. We're going to go to Jerusalem. The Son of Man is going to be sold into the hands of sinners. I'm going to be betrayed, and then they're going to take me, and they're going to kill me. So we read of that last week. We read of his fulfillment there, and we read of Peter's 
unwise or silly attempt to rescue him. But really, we read of Peter trying to go against God's will for that situation. Moving towards the cross now, because that's where this section of scripture, or that's where this event will all end. It's kind of like, this is all kind of like one big long event here. Moving toward the cross, because that's where Jesus will end up here at the cross. Moving towards the cross this week, we are going to study the sad account of Jesus facing some very angry people who hated him, even though he did nothing wrong. Look at verse 57 again very quickly. And the Bible says again, And those who had laid hold of Jesus, this would be the Roman guards, led him away to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders were assembled. The Roman guards here that were all assembled against him along with Judas, but Judas is no more now. He's, he has gone off. But So the Roman guards now, they take him away. But John eighteen twelve tells us, unlike Matthew here, that they actually bound him or tied him up, you'd say, probably in shackles or chains or of that matter. And then they led him away while he was bound, while he was shackled, okay, to meet those that persecuted Christ in his three and a half year ministry. These are the same guys that we read about right here, that were always going against Jesus. Every time he did a miracle, oh, he's doing it by the, uh, you know, by the ruler of the demons, by Beelzebub. He, he's, he, that's that one there. Oh, he, he, oh, that's, he, he's, he's a fraud. Oh, let's get him. Let's, let's plan a way to kill him. These were the guys, the same people throughout his three and a half years that hated him and were verbally lashing him and arguing with him and attacking him the whole time he was telling people the truths of God. And then he also told these people their, the truths about them too, that they were very wicked, that they were like wolves in sheep clothing, that they were you know like whitewashed tombs, right? They were pretty on the outside, but full of dead men's bones on the inside, right? These were the same guys. These guys, in fact, were the leaders of the Jewish religion, okay, of Judaism. This was, though, in sense, in, in a, or not in a sense, this was where the Roman guards led him to uh, the high priest and the Sanhedrin. Okay, This would have been the council of Jews that got together to decide all the matters of the religion of Judaism. Uh, and in case you're wondering, here Jesus isn't just fa- facing these who hate him, who have hated him for three and a half years. Uh, in an informal meeting, these guys, these Roman soldiers, have brought Jesus to face his trial, where uh, Jesus has already been pronounced guilty and his sentence has already been death even before they ever brought him. Jesus here gets taken to the courtroom where the judge, jury, and prosecutor are waiting for him and where everybody there except for Christ had the verdict of guilty for Jesus passed before the trial ever began. The main difference here in our section of scripture versus the way we do things in America. Here in America, usually the judge is one person and then there's a persecutor and then there's a jury and then there's, you know, then there's a defense and everything. Well, there was no defense for Jesus. He was all alone. And here the persecutor and the judge are the same or one in the same person. They're both the high priests. The jury, the one that decides the verdict is the council of the Sanhedrin. Okay, so this scene of this scripture here would look somewhat like a courtroom. Now, even though they already had a verdict of guilty for Christ's past, this trial for Jesus was necessary for them to carry out. Why? Well, it was necessary on both a Roman and a godly way. It was required for them to have this trial against Jesus. Let me explain. 
The Romans, you see, didn't allow the Jews to execute people. The Rome, Rome, as they came in, they took certain rights away from the Jews. And one of those rights that they took away from the Jews was, see, God allowed certain certain punishments for their people to carry out. Like if somebody were to do this, or if there was a woman caught in adultery, or if a man caught in adultery, then God said, oh, you can stone him. But the, but the Romans had taken away the 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 Israelites or the Jewish people's sentences. They could no longer judge their own people. They, they had to give now that judgment to the Romans. The Rome, Rome had to be the one to carry out all like judicial things. Okay? And so Rome had the final authority on whether somebody faced death or whether somebody was you know hung or stoned or whatever. And then the Romans didn't really even do that. But anyway, nevertheless, the Romans are the ones that really had made the final decision on whether or not somebody could be put to death you know, even if the Jews wanted to put somebody to death. That was the first reason that this trial was necessary. It was a necessary evil, but it was really necessary, but it was evil because the people that were holding it were evil as well, too. You see, it was necessary from God's perspective because in the law of God to Moses, in Deuteronomy 19.15, God tells Moses that, one witness shall not rise against a man concerning any iniquity, or you could say, or, or any sin that he commits. By the mouth of two or three witnesses, the matter shall be established. So you see that although they had convicted Jesus of a sentence of death, and they had him judged guilty already, they needed an official, right? They needed an official, more than one person to say, yes, that's what we heard him say. They needed a, an official judgment against him by more than just one people in order to keep God happy. So even though they already had Christ judged guilty and sentenced to death before the trial ever began, from a Roman perspective, they wanted to make sure that they had a unanimous verdict of guilty against Jesus to bring the, to the Roman court so that they could ask for the penalty of death to be passed, because remember, they couldn't do it on their own. And on the God's side, and on the God's side, or God's side, right, they were very self-righteous people. So they probably here wanted to give, you know, make an outward show that they were following God's laws to Moses, even though they weren't really, right? Um, they were really, they really had a superficial walk before God. They really just wanted to make the people look, you know, think that they were righteous, but even though they weren't righteous, okay? So they, but, and they knew they needed more than one person to come against him. And so how do I already know that they already had him judged and sentenced to death even before the trial began. Look at who was in the courtroom and where the courtroom was. Look at verse 58 again with me. But Peter followed him at a distance to the high priest's courtyard. And he went in and sat with the servants to see the end. Dissect this real quick. First, we see that there's Peter there, surprisingly. This is the same disciple Peter who denied him, who fled, or who forsook him and left him in the garden, right? Along with the other disciples. And John's gospel tells us that actually John, the, the apostle or the disciple John, was there also. But other than them, who was there? And did you notice where this court was, where this courtroom was? Uh, the courtroom was, did you see there in verse 58, the high priest's courtyard, and the only people there except the disciples were the high priest's servants. That sounds like a setup to me. Not exactly where a normal trial would be, right? I mean, normally a 
normal trial is held uh, in a courtroom or there's lots of people, more than just the people that are against the, the what do you call it, the plaintiff or the one that's being accused. Here we see that the courtyard is the high priest's courtyard, the courtroom is the high priest's courtyard, and the only people there, aside from his disciples, are the high priest's servants. Now, do you think that with all the followers of Christ that he had, more of them wouldn't have been there to see this trial? Well, of course they had. Of course they would have. Jesus had thousands of followers, not just his 12. He had thousands of followers that followed him everywhere he went. But for this trial, just another interesting fact here, they couldn't be there because Scripture tells us that this trial was held very late at night or very, very, very early in the morning while it was still dark and most people were, would have been asleep. Where, you say? Where? Well, Matthew 26, 17 through 20 tells us that Jesus ate the Passover with his disciples on the evening of the first day of unleavened bread. The evening of the first day there is very key. This trial is being held the same night as that same Passover meal that they ate just that evening. Okay? Well... If that was the evening, and now this trial is after, and Jesus goes away to the garden to pray three times, he wasn't over there praying for five minutes. This is the same Jesus that would sit on a mountaintop and pray all night long. This trial was being held several hours, maybe even later, after the evening Passover meal, right? So it was very late at night or very early in the morning, maybe midnight, 1 o'clock, 2 o'clock in the morning is when this trial was actually being held. Now maybe you can understand why the disciples were so tired, right? And they fell asleep three different times as Jesus would go away to pray and then come back. Not only was it super late at night, like we read, or we're reading right now, like I'm talking about last week, our message last week, not only was it very late at night or super early in the morning, but then they had just had a humongous meal. Remember what David Brickner said about the Passover meal? He said, come hungry. Okay, so now, so this trial is taking place at the high priest's courtyard with only a couple of Jesus' disciples who weren't really involved and the high priest's servants looking on, <coughs> set up. <coughs> but what do these evil-hearted religious leaders do now that they have Christ in a completely set up situation where he's all alone and everybody there except for these two disciples are all against him. Look at verse 59. Now the chief priests, the elders, and all the council sought false testimony against Jesus to put him to death. Well, of course, because it is a set up situation and Christ is really innocent, they must get people to testify falsely against him so that they can get an official guilty verdict from you know for the Roman courts to find proof for the death penalty. Okay? Told you that they had already had the verdict of Christ for of guilty, and I told you that they had already sentenced him to death before the trial ever began. And verse 59 there shows us that very clearly because they sought false testimony against them. In a real courtroom, they would seek to find eyewitnesses that had real evidence and real proof of either A, if they were guilty, or B, if they were innocent, but they would call all the people that knew about the trial instead of just the ones that had false or, or against, and they would get all kinds of testimony, both good and bad, for the one that was being judged. But here they were only looking for false testimony so that they could get that official judgment of death, right? 
They were not going to allow Jesus to get off of their verdict and their charge of death and guilty, no matter what period of the end, even if, even if it meant, which we just saw, them being deceitful in order to do it. Now, remember, according to God's law, to Moses in Deuteronomy, there had to be at least two or more witnesses to agree for an accusation or charge of guilty against someone to stick. Did these guys find two witnesses to agree? Not right away. Read the first part of verse 60 here. And the Bible goes on to say, But they found none. Even though many false witnesses came forward, they found none. So what, it's, what they're saying there is many false witnesses came forth. Many individual people came forth and said, Oh, I saw him do this. But then the next guy would come in and say, oh, I saw him do this. And they were all maybe bad things or evil, sinful things that he did. But they, they couldn't get what the Bible's saying is they couldn't get two of them, two consecutive people to agree on the same wrong that he did. One guy would say this one wrong thing. One guy would say this wrong thing. And it was just a multiple of false wrong things that Jesus supposedly did, but no two of them would come forth with the same accusation. And I think, though, here, it's pretty sad that at their trial of Christ, where their verdict to him was guilty, and their sentence of him was death before the trial ever started, that they couldn't have already had two false witnesses prepared. How stupid was this? And, and I... I <laughs> How come they didn't already have two false witnesses ready to stand there to agree on a supposed crime before the trial ever started? I really don't think that they were in control of this. Although God allowed this to happen, I do believe God here, kind of like, you know, he said, hey, I'm going to make them look like the fools that they really are because, you know what, my son is innocent and I know he's got to do this, but absolutely he is not guilty of any crime at all because remember, Christ didn't sin at all. He was innocent. He was the perfect sinless lamb that came to die for the sins of the world. So did they eventually get their way? Uh, after a little while, sadly, yes. Uh, read the rest of verse 60. Start at, but at last there. But at last, two false witnesses came forward, right? Finally, they get two of their evil-hearted false witnesses. They probably went out of the courtroom. One of the counsels went out of the courtroom and said, Hey, guys, hey, two of you, come here. This is what I need you to do. I need two people. Hey, you you and you. Hey, go in there after and get in and, and say the say that he did this and, and agree upon it. Yeah, because we need two people at least to, to convict this guy of a guilty verdict. And we and he's not getting out of here. So we need this, we need this, we need this thing to be done, okay? So they finally probably got smart and went out and kind of coached the false witnesses, and they finally agreed. What did they finally agree upon that he actually did and, 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 you know, that they proved him guilty? Look at verse 61. These two false witnesses came forward and said, This fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and build it in three days. Did Jesus really go forth and say, I will destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days? Absolutely not. But these liars and the ones that were there that were liars and evil people had to have something to convict him of or else he would have gotten off free. Jesus did say something like this 
but not anything close to. He said, I I will destroy the temple of God, as these liars said. We got John 2, 13 through 22, where Jesus does talk about this destroying the temple, but let's read it in its full context. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And he found in the temple those who sold oxen and sheep and doves and money changers doing business. When he had made a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen and poured out the changers' money and overturned the tables. And he said to those who sold doves, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. Then his disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house has eaten me up. So the Jews answered and said to him, What sign do you show us since you do these things? Jesus answered and said to them, Listen to this now. Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Notice he did not say, I will destroy the temple of God, and in three days I will raise it up. He said, simply destroy this temple, and in three days I will rise it up. What what, what did he mean? Verse 20, then the Jews said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it in three days? But... And this is John speaking now. But he was speaking of the temple of his body. Therefore, when he had risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this to them. And they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had said. So no, ladies and gentlemen, Jesus never said, I will destroy the temple of God and raise it back up in three days. He spoke of, I will, you'll kill me. This temple, because the Bible says that our bodies are considered a temple, the temple of the Holy Spirit, if you're saved, in fact. But the Bible said, Jesus said that really he was speaking of his body, that they were going to kill, that he was going to raise up after three days. He was talking about his death, that they were going to kill him, his resurrection from that dead in three days, and the disciple of God, of uh, and the disciple of John was just describing how that's what he meant. Not absolutely that he would destroy the temple of God, because of course that would be against God to destroy his temple. And Jesus didn't do anything against God, right? Jesus was for God all the way. This is how Jesus lived his life. He lived his life for God. So look at what the high priests do next and how Jesus responds. Read verses 62 and 63 up to silence. Verse 62, And the high priest arose and said to him, Do you answer nothing? What is is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus kept silent. So, the high priest here asks him two questions. What were they? First question, he says, Do you answer nothing to the charges against him? Don't Don't you say anything, Jesus? Don't you have anything to say for yourself? Then he says, what is it that these men testify against you? Meaning, aren't you going to say anything, number one, aren't you going to say anything about what they said to you? And number two, what about this charge that they bring against you? Doesn't that make you angry? What, they're looking for a reaction, right? They're looking for Jesus to, to react some way. Oh, 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 this is wrong. I didn't do any of that. You're wrong. But here, Christ is silent. He says not a word. He takes Solomon's advice in Proverbs 26.4 where Solomon writes, Do not answer a fool according to his folly, lest you also be like him. You see, Jesus knew when somebody has 
determined, something determined in their hearts that they're going to do. It's something that they're going to do. And they have it determined. We're going to do this. That's it. We're going all the way. That's it. Like these foolish guys did here. There's really nothing that anyone can say to change their minds. And truly, Jesus knew here that the high priest and those false witnesses with him were being foolish. And it didn't matter how much he would have really said to defend himself. Because they were going to find him guilty and give him the sentence of death and, and or give him the sentence of guilty and, and the punishment of death regardless. So if Christ would have answered them, one, it would have been a waste of his time, and two, he would have become a fool just like them. <clears throat> he was there to do a job to die for the sins of mankind. He knew that the end result was going to be his death on the cross. What? purpose was it to try to defend himself because sure he could have said yeah i'm not guilty but guess what he was all alone he had no witnesses there that would have stood up for him peter and john were kind of trying to stay in the in the down low right they didn't want to stand up they were kind of trying to keep quiet they didn't they really didn't want anybody to know they were there because peter right after this we're, we're not going to read it we read it already he denies him three times when the servant girl and some other people come to him and say, hey, you're one of them, right? No, I'm not. Uh, no, 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 I'm not. So Peter and John are really staying on the down low. So Jesus only would have had a defense for himself. He would have had no other eyewitnesses there to say, no, he never said it that way. No, no, that's not right. Say, so what did the Bible say? The Bible says you need at least two or three witnesses to defend, right? To, to either make an accusation or to fight off an accusation. And here Jesus was all alone. He would have been as big of a fool as they were had he tried to answer them. How does the high priest respond to the silence of Christ? Read verse 63 from, and the high priest answered. Look here. Verse 63. And the high priest answered and said to him, I put you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the son of the living God. The high priest puts him under oath by God. He says, hey, tell me by the living God who you really are. But notice, high priest wasn't too concerned about the accusations of the false witnesses anymore, was he? That's, in fact, wasn't even what he said. He didn't say, tell us by the living God. Did you say you'd really destroy the temple in three days and rebuild it? No. All of a sudden, that issue was gone already. No. The charges, he changes the subject from the false witnesses' accusations to destroying the temple of God to asking Jesus if he was indeed the Christ, the Son of the living God. You see, this was their main issue with Jesus. Not that he had said that. They knew that was a false witness. They knew that was a lie. Their main issue with Jesus was that he professed, he proclaimed to be God's Son. That he proclaimed to be the Messiah, the Christ, the Savior of all mankind. And so since that was their main issue really for bringing him there, this is what really comes out in the accusational time or the trying to get him to respond to the accusations, even though because that other accusation that was just kind of like that was just for filler. Hey, they got two witnesses to agree. Hey, that's that's all they need. Now he's guilty. Now we want to know, do you really actually think that you're the Jewish Messiah or the Christ? So now that Jesus has been put under oath unto Almighty God, and he has been asked if he is indeed the Messiah, 
or the Christ, what does he do? Look at verse 64. Jesus said to him, It is as you said. I agree. I am the Christ. I am the Son of the living God. And and not only am I God's Son, but here, guess what you're going to see? Nevertheless, I say to you, hereafter, you will see the Son of Man, which is a title that the Bible also gives Christ, the Son of Man, sitting at the right hand of the power. So not only am I God's Son, but you're going to see me someday sitting at God's right hand. Well, God's right hand was meant for the Messiah. God's right hand was meant for the Christ. So Jesus is now telling him, yes, I'm the Son of God, and you're going to see me, the Son of God, doing the things that the Son of God is supposed to do. And he says, not only will you see me sitting at the right hand of God, but you'll also see me coming in the clouds of heaven. And he's talking about the final judgment, about finals, uh, Christ's final second return, where he comes back to judge the living and the dead, where all men will see him, even the people in the grave. He's saying, you're going to see me on that day, and I'm going to come again on a second coming, the second coming that they're still waiting for today because they didn't believe that he came the first time. They're actually waiting for the first time for him to come, not the second. Okay, now that Jesus has laid it all on the line and told this guy and the whole council these things about himself that are truly what the Jewish Messiah will do, what does the high priest do? Does he fall on the ground? Oh, wow! You're right! I'm wrong! Oh my gosh, you're right! You know what? I'm sorry. Go home. We forgive you. You're innocent. No, absolutely not. Goodness! No, that was against their total motive for bringing him there. They do just the opposite. Look at verse 65. Then the high priest tore his clothes, saying, He has spoken blasphemy. What further need do we have of witnesses? Throw the witnesses out. We got enough. We got the conviction. He's guilty. Look, now you have heard this blasphemy. That's all he needed to hear from Jesus' mouth. First notice there that he tears his clothes. I've always wondered this, and I finally was unctioned to search this out, but you read about all throughout the Bible, different times, people tearing their clothes. Well, first he tears his clothes. That's a Jewish practice called kriah, K-R-I-A-H. I may be saying it wrong. Forgive me, anybody that knows Hebrew out there. Cry or kriah, and it's defined as a tangible, a tangible and obligatory expression of grief. He tears his clothes. He's showing the whole council that he was deeply grieved by what Christ says here. And he claims that Jesus is speaking blasphemy. Tears his clothes. Blasphemy. He's speaking blasphemy. Listen to what he said. He's claiming to be the Son of God. Blasphemy. Definition of blasphemy, according to Miriam Webster. The act of insulting or showing contempt or lack of reverence for God or the act of claiming the attributes of deity or of God. And here, Jesus Christ did claim to be the Son of God, which is an attribute or, a, 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 you know, an, well, yeah, an attribute of God. And so here they find him guilty. 
he, the high priest finds him guilty of blasphemy. And this is exactly what the Jews believed blasphemy was, uh, the, uh, claiming the attributes of God. And Jesus would have indeed been guilty of blasphemy, but he said of him, uh, by what he said of himself, if he were not the Son of God. But of course, we know what the Bible says, and he claimed, backed it up, that he was the Son of God and the real Jewish Messiah. And he, so he was not committing blasphemy, as these guys said. And so he was not guilty of this crime. Does this matter to the council? Does it matter to all those that are sitting on, watching along? No. Look at verse 66. The high priest says to them, What do you think? The judge and the persecutor asked the jury. They answered and said, He is deserving of death. He asked them if they think Jesus is guilty of blasphemy. As he just said, and of course they agree that Christ was guilty and they sentenced this innocent God slash man, Jesus Christ, to death, which was their original plan to begin with. Their sentence, their guilt, their verdict of him was guilty and their sentence of him was death. Then sadly, finishing out, look at verses 67 and 68. Look what they do. Look at how they treat him after they get a sentence of guilty and a verdict or a verdict of guilty and a sentence of death. Then they spat in his face and they beat him. And others struck him with the palms of their hands, saying, Prophecy to us, Christ, who is the one who struck you? So it wasn't good enough that they got their verdict of guilty and their sentence of death at this ridiculous trial that they could take now to Governor Pontius Pilate and say, hey, now, Governor, we found him guilty. He's guilty according to our law, and by our laws, he's to die. So now you want to keep us happy, so now you must execute him, right? It's not good enough that they got this verdict of guilty. It's not good enough now they can go to Pontius Pilate. No, not good enough at all. Then after they got this verdict, after they sentenced him to death, then they had to spit in his face, and then they had to beat him with the palms of their hands. And then they had to mock him also. I want you to try to imagine this scene in your mind. Remembering John 18, 12. Here, Jesus all alone. His two disciples were sitting in the audience somewhere, hidden. They weren't there to defend him. They weren't there to stand up for him. Here, Jesus is all by himself, standing in the midst of the council of the Sanhedrin. Roman guards probably still there. High priest accusing him, being the persecutor. All the jury, every single, 99.9% of the people there, maybe hundreds, are all against him. He stands in the midst, only said one sentence this whole time. And what is he? Remember, John 18, 12, he was bound. He was tied up in the midst of all these ravenous wolves. They try him in a joke trial. They find him guilty by liars. Then he professes the truth out of his mouth. They find him guilty of blasphemy. And then, while he's tied up and completely helpless in a physical manner, all this bunch of ravenous wolves starts spitting in his face, striking him with the palms of their hands. Remember, while he's defenseless, and they start mocking him 
the whole time they're doing this. At, remember, an ungodly time of the day. Notice always, even today, that the devil always does his dirtiest deeds in the darkness and the cover of night. Well, that's what we see here. Because the way they treat Jesus here, well, for instance, how they treat Jesus here, a dog shouldn't even be treated the way Jesus was treated here. And yet they treated Christ worse than anybody would treat a dog. And in case you're wondering what God's punishment was for blasphemy in the Bible, well, Leviticus 24, 13 and 14 says that there was a, a young boy who spoke blasphemous words in the camp of the Israelites back when you know God was giving Moses the law. And what God said the punishment for blasphemy was is simply the ones that heard the person speak the blasphemy, they were supposed to walk up and place their hands on the person's head and then all the congregation of the Israelites were supposed to, the ones that were, I guess, all that could, put their hands on him as well. And then right after that, simply, they were just supposed to stone him to death. Just not, no, 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 no uh, tying him up. No spitting in his face. No mocking him. No beating him up before they put him to death. No, just simply place the hands on the head. Everybody that heard, hey, he's guilty, okay, he's guilty, let's get rid of this evil, and then just stone him to death. But no, God never ordained anyone being treated inhumanly like a piece of dirt. What does that make these religious leaders here? What does that make them for what they did? Well, they were straight up heathens who pretended to be righteous and only followed God superficially, as I mentioned earlier in the sermon. So that everybody thought they were religious and godly. But really, in essence, these religious leaders in the Council of the Sanhedrin, they were really more evil than those that they looked down upon, the prostitutes and the tax collectors and all the people that weren't as righteous as them. They were more evil and more heinous and more of a heathen than any of the people that they put down in their lives. Now, knowing all that, do you see why Jesus Christ prayed in the garden? He went to God three. He went to God that first time and said, "Father, if it's your will, please, Lord, let this cup pass from me." He knew that this was all going to happen to him, and yet he still went anyway. Now, go back with me real quick to what Christ went through here, and I just want to say a little bit more on it, not from the perspective of the context of the passage, but I want to read. 67 and 68 over one more time and I want you to think about it and I want to let this sink into your minds. Verse 67 and 68 again. They found him guilty, verse 66, serving a death, 67. Then after they found him guilty, they spat in his face. They beat him and others struck him with the palms of their hands, saying, Prophecy to us, Christ! Mockingly, who is the one that struck you? Imagine this. He's God in the flesh. 
He created these people. He loved these people. He was going to this trial so that he could prove his love for them by dying on the cross, by allowing this happen to happen to him. He allowed these people to do this to him. At any moment, he could have transfigured himself, which meant, like he did on the Mount of Transfiguration, he could have disappeared in the human form, and he could have made himself angelic, you know, no human body form. He could have skipped it all. Then he could have called the angels down, and he could have had them smite all the people that were there. Or, like in the book of Revelation, where he opens his mouth and a flame of fire comes out and consumes all the people that are standing there. He could have done that too. And he could have escaped it all. But he didn't. He allowed them to spit in his face. He allowed them to beat him. He allowed him to strike him with the palms of their hands. He allowed him to mock him. He's the creator, the Bible says, of all the universe. Through him, all things were created. Why did he do this? Why did he go through this suffering? Why did he allow himself to be struck? Why did he allow himself to be spat on? Why did he allow himself to be insulted? Because he had you and me and the whole world of people on his mind. He was thinking about us. And he was thinking about our salvation. He was thinking about you going to heaven forever. And that's why he did what he did. I wouldn't want to treat my worst enemy this way. I wouldn't want to treat anybody this way. Any sinner, any evil person, I wouldn't want them to be treated this way. Yet Jesus here was not evil at all. He came and he shared love with people. He came and he showed people the way to God. He came and he had compassion on those that were hurting and showed love to those that were struck down and, 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 and insulted and, and, and treated like crap by the religious leaders. He showed them love. And yet here in the end, all the love that he showed, they treated him in the most inhuman way that anybody could be treated. So he allowed them to do this to him. And here in a little bit, we'll read of how Jesus allowed the Romans to crucify him and put him to death. And he could have skipped it all. But he didn't. And just think, he didn't because he was thinking of you. He was thinking of me. Because had Jesus not allowed this to happen to him, we would have never had the chance to go to heaven and be with God forever. And he did it All because he loves you and he loves me. So as you think of this great love that he showed or demonstrated for you, I'd like to ask you today if you really love him back. If you really love him in return.
Jesus demonstrated his love for you. Do you demonstrate your love for him back on a daily basis? Jesus says, John 14, 15, If you love me, keep my commandments. Notice it's if you love him first. You don't do those commandments to, to love him. You say you love him and then you keep the commandments. The love, the relationship is always first. So are you saying you love Jesus? And if you do say you love Jesus, do you keep his commandments? John 14, 15. And again, in Luke 6, 46, he said, But why do you call me Lord, Lord, and don't do the things which I say? So many in America, I'm not sure about other countries out there, so many, Ameri- so many in America, though, claim to know Jesus Christ, and they claim to love him. Yet the same people I hear tell me that they love him don't really live for him. And what do I mean by saying really live for him? I mean, you know, oh, I love Jesus. I love Jesus. And do you really have a daily relationship with him? Do you really communicate with him? Talk to him? And are you really working at listening to him and his words and what he says? Do you then really, do you apply his word after you hear him speak, whether by rhema, which is by the spirit or by the holy word, the holy Bible? Do you really then apply his word, the Bible, in your life? Do you apply the teachings of Christ, the teachings of God to your life? Do you really daily deny the sinful ways of your flesh? Do you really, as the Bible says, put the death, the deeds of the flesh? What is that? That's repentance. Are you daily walking in repentance unto God? Not that you should be living for sin, but if you sin, then do you, oh God, please forgive me, I'm so sorry. And then do you work at stopping the committing of that sin? Or... Do you just sit, oh, well, you know, hey, God died for my sins. Hey, he loves me. I Whatever, I just sin all I want. I don't, it doesn't matter. Hey, God loves me. One is life. One is death. Bible says, Jesus, in fact, says, Luke 9, 23. Then he said to them all, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself or repent. Let him take up his cross let him kill his flesh, let his flesh die to the ways of his flesh, let his self die to his ways of his flesh, and let him follow after me. Overall, we come up, do you daily obey him as the Lord of your life, following in his ways and living for him in the ways he says, in the way his word says that you should live for him? Does your life resemble this or not? Do you love Jesus Christ for real or do you not? Is he your Lord? Would somebody be able to know he is your Lord by looking at your life? When they hear you talk, when they see the things that you do, how you drive, and the music that you listen to, and all the things that you do, would they really say that that man or that woman loves Jesus Christ? If you are listening to this message, 
If this is you, you know this is you. If you don't, if you don't really love God, then people know you don't really love God. And they could see it in the way you live. You know that you live in a way that doesn't honor God. And if this is you, then you know it's you because your heart is telling you it's you right now. If this is you, then you, my friend, are in need of repentance immediately. A turning to the Lord right now with all your heart and away from your sins and unto Christ, for real. Listen to this now. He gave his life for you, and look at what your salvation cost him. He was tied up, spit on, mocked, beaten, struck with the palms of people's hands. That's what he went through to save you. This is how he showed his love for you. He allowed him to do it. And he finished the journey to the cross where he gave his life for you. Are you giving your life to him? And do your actions and your words and all the things you do in your life, do they show it? If this is you and you know it's you and you're not showing God you love him by the way you live, and your life is truly not surrendered unto Him, and He's truly not your Lord, and you don't live for Him, please turn to Him right now. If your lifestyle doesn't match up with how Christ lived and said to live, and please repent today. Today, fall on your faces and weep before Almighty God over your sins and tell him you're sorry and ask him to have mercy on you and forgive you and then turn to him and change. Allow him to change. Start following his word. Surrender your life to him now before it's too late. Your life could end today. And if you're not following Christ and his ways and the way the Bible says to then the Bible says you're going to go to hell and you're going to burn there forever. But God doesn't want that. Jesus doesn't want that. That's why he just allowed these people to do this to him. That's why he just that's why he went to the cross. He died for your sins to pay for your sins, not so that you could continue to live in your sins and live for yourself. So please today turn to Christ before it's too late. Please, I beg you, as I'm pleading with you, as Almighty God would, God loves you so much. Let's pray. Lord God in heaven, thank you so much, Lord God, for this day. Thank you so much for your word. Thank you so much for what you went through for us, Lord. Thank you for so much, so much for how you demonstrated your love for us. God, we just pray right now, dear God, that all those listening to this message, all those out there, dear God, would hear the love that you showed for them and realize that they're not demonstrating their love for you like you did for them. And we pray, dear God, that they would turn to you right now and start showing you that, you, that they love you. Turn to you, Lord, and ask for forgiveness. Surrender their lives to you. And seek your face and put their trust in you. 
Please, dear God, please turn their hearts to you. And thank you so much again for the way you demonstrated your love for us. Thank you so much. Please, Lord, work on the hearts of all those that listen to this message, Lord, and turn them to Christ. And we ask these things and pray these things in the mighty name of Jesus Christ, Lord. Amen. Praise God, everyone. It's Pastor Ed here. and Thank you so much for listening to the message. It's my prayer that you were encouraged and challenged with what you heard today to be a doer of God's word and not a hearer only. Because your life will soon be passed and only what you've done for Jesus Christ will last. If you live in the Dallas, Texas area, we want to invite you to come to our little house church here in McKinney, Texas. Sunday mornings, our service is at 1015 and the directions can be found on our website. Also, if you have any prayer requests or questions or maybe you believe God has called you to support this church financially, please go to gospelsavingchurch.com and click on the appropriate links. I would love to hear from you personally. God loves you very much. Please love him back by the way you live your life. God bless you and have a wonderful day.